So tonight we're going to be in the book of Job. And we're going to be in Job. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3. And as I introduced Job last week, I mentioned, of course, we've shifted gears from historical books to poetic books. So no more of those historical record books from Genesis all the way to Esther. But now we get the poetic books, beginning with Job. And so when we look at the poetic books, we realize we are looking at poetry. We're getting things that are philosophical. And, you know, the book of Proverbs, it's wisdom. And the book of Psalms, it's songs, it's life, it's human expression. So we've come to a huge shift in the type of Word of God, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God that we're seeing in the context. It's no longer historical context, but philosophical and poetic. And the book of Job, of course, is a book about this man, Job, who lived about 4,000 years ago, most likely before the time of the Jewish covenant, the Mosaic covenant with God and the nation of Israel. Most scholars consider him a contemporary of Abraham, so that's about 2100 B.C., about 4,000 years ago. He refers to God in his personal relationship with God is God Almighty, El Shaddai, like Abraham referred to God. So there's no reference to God as Jehovah Lord, like we see with the nation of Israel 500 years later. And so he's in a post-flood, post-Ice Age world. The region he's from is modern Jordan. So he's south of the Dead Sea. Southeast is the region ascribed to where he lived his journey. We know he was the most successful, impactful man in his generation in his region. He was... He had a heart for the Lord. He was just an upright man. He had a healthy family, 10 children that he interceded for every day, we're told. He was extremely successful in his finances, and he was respected by all the people. He's just amazing. He was the, the full four square of success by anyone's definition, how you would measure success, either not just in faith, but even from a, a worldly standpoint. He was an extremely successful man. We know there's a spiritual battle behind his life in the heavenly scenes. We have Satan, the accuser, coming before God and accusing Job to God, basically saying that I'm going to make, I can make anyone curse you. Any son of Adam will curse you. And he says the only reason Job hasn't cursed you is because you've blessed him and put a hedge around him. And God's confidence in Job's faith in him is revealed in this book. And so there's a spiritual battle behind the earthly scene. We saw in that first chapter that Job lost all of his wealth and his family with the exception of his wife in one day. It all came in waves of bad news. And he said, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we see who he was in that moment of crisis that he wasn't trying to find his character. He was revealing his character. So now we pick it up going from there. Uh, his body's now been afflicted. So now he's lost his health as well. He's in pain physical pain and he's now going more into that realm of like a psychological uh, depression despondency uh, to the edge to the brink of insanity maybe even in what he's experiencing in his emotions so he's lost the family he's lost the wealth but now he's dealing with he's got the physical suffering but now it's the mental anguish and the, the issues of the soul and so now as we go forward in the book of Job this is what we're going forward in for really the rest of the book. So now we're really into it. And as I mentioned when I introduced the book, there's a cadence to Job where it kind of changes. It's, it's not just an autopilot like on the freeway, but it's like a shifting gears like a Grand Prix because the book, you know, there's different things that you're going to shift gears in. And what we see is there's dialogues between Job and his friends and, and the other fellow that shows up later on. And so what I want to do as we go through Job 
is keep the context of each dialogue. So as I mentioned last week, some nights we might have more chapters or less chapters based upon the context of the dialogue. So we, what we want is the complete conversation. That's what we want. We want the complete conversation in its entirety and look at that in that context. Okay, so that's, that's what we're doing. And so tonight as we come to Job, we're going to get Job cursing the day of his birth. Then we're going to get the opinions of this Eliphaz, and he's going to talk for two chapters. And then we're going to get Job's response to Eliphaz. So we're getting the completeness. So tonight we have five chapters. They're not particularly long. The verses are shorter, but it is more than I'd normally read. But we're getting the context of a dialogue in the first opening scene or opening act of Job now with the people philosophically with opinions about his suffering and how he sees it as well. So we pick it up now in chapter 3, Job says this. After this, Job opened his mouth, cursed the day of his birth, and Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joy shout come into it. No joyful shout. May those curse it who curse the day, those who curse to arouse Leviathan. That's the dragon. We'll get more of that later on in the book. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me or, or why the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who build ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Oh, why? Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor, the small and great are there. And the servant is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly or are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes." Now, in your living experience, many of you have been, certainly if you're older, pulled into tragic situations. A loved one with a terminal illness, you just got to go through it. You have to face it. You're there. You can't stop the grief. When something's terminal, it's terminal. And you, we don't choose these things, but again, I say this often, life is testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy. And if you live 80 years, you're going to get all the above in one capacity or another. You're moving toward eternity. Everyone you love above you, beside you, and below you, they're moving toward eternity. And we're not designed for suffering, and we're not designed for death, and we experience all of that. Now, when I made myself available to become a pastor and go into ministry, 
At that time, I pictured it more like teaching people, exhorting people, encouraging people, coaching people, like a surf coach. And I, I just, you know, let's go. We can do this. But what I've really learned in 35 years of ministry, it's comforting people. It's exhorting people, but it's comforting people because the human experience is filled with heartache and difficulty. And certainly in those issues of the soul, of life and death things and tragedies, people look toward uh, men and women of faith who are leaders that are men and women of faith to come in and bring truth, to bring comfort, and certainly in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the presence of the Lord and peace upon grievous situations. In my vocation as a pastor, I've come into just very, very grievous situations many, many times. And I try not to be numb to it, just like a first responder would never want to be numb to it. But I almost have a, a, or I deal with the reality of the situation. Like this person's going to eternity. When our friend John, who fellowship here for years, and I went to visit him, and he he was going to pass that night, and he was totally coherent. And I was praying over him, and we're singing a worship song together, and I waved goodbye to him with a thumbs up. Like, it's not that I'm... I was actually happy for him because he's going to glory. And it's not that I'm insensitive, but again, we're all like in an airport waiting to get on our flight. We're all in an airport in time, and you can't leave this airport. The human experience, we're in an airport, and there's a flight for us. And when the thing comes up on the board that your flight's leaving at this gate, whether you want to go to it or not, you're going to that gate. So we're all just waving. We're in an airport. People are arriving, but they're going to be leaving too. And then you're leaving. And so I... I I've been in this situation where people are like this. This is, this, is a, this is a deep, heartfelt despair of a man going through an extremely difficult, by anyone's perspective, tragedy. Everything he held dear to him has been taken from him. And now he's wrestling with it. And I will say this, and I'm probably going to say it numerous times as we go through Job. As Job enters into dialogue with his friends and, these, and the other guy, You'll find that Job often is talking about the Lord, and then he's talking to the Lord. He has a relationship with God. These other guys, you're going to notice something. They never talk to the Lord. They talk about the Lord. They have theological and philosophical opinions about God and men and suffering. But they don't talk to the Lord. They don't know the Lord. Maybe they know about the Lord. And in the end, everything these guys say God's going to reprove it in chapter 42 and say that it was bad counsel. Now, what we find as we see these guys, because they're going to start commenting right after Job says all this, they're going to comment on things, they're going to say things, and some of those things are true. They're, they're true statements. But the spirit in which they're said, they're, they don't bring ministry and comfort with how they're said. The perspective and opinion by which they're said is not honored by the Lord. The Lord reproves these guys, these three guys that start out our scene and carry us all the way into the 30s, of the chapters. You'll notice they have opinions about God, philosophy, men, and suffering, but they're never talking to the Lord. Job is talking to the Lord. And that's the beauty of a personal relationship with God. We can pour out our heart to the Lord. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And whatever heartache we're going through, we can cast our cares upon the Lord. I've said this in ministry for 35 years. Listen, I'm not available to you 24-7, but Jesus is. You can call on Jesus anytime. You can, you can talk to Jesus for three hours and never come up for air. You cannot talk to me for three hours and never come up for air. There's a limit. 
you know? But there's no limit with the Lord. He, he's always there. And that's the beauty of the personal relationship with the Lord. And there's no sense in trying to be superficial with the Lord. He, he knows what we're going through. Whether we feel like a weak failure or strong or, or prideful or whatever. Like, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God, and confirms them to our, our spirit within us. So, Job cursed the day he was born. Now, remember, Satan said, I'm going to get Job to curse you. Job never cursed God. He just cursed the day he was born. And there is a difference. He never crossed that line. I've ministered to people. When you walk into a house of death, where death is looming, whether it's a 10-year-old or a 39-year-old wife, or anything beyond that, or before that, or after that. When you walk in those situations where, the, as Charles Spurgeon said, the Grim Reaper is in the neighborhood and he's coming to your house. It's just, for the people who are being left behind, it can just be so, why God? Why would a loving God allow this? And, and you know, I've had people, man, I've had people really want me to explain theologically why they've suffered and gone through heartache and despair, and why their child didn't make it, and why their spouse didn't make it, and these sorts of things, and why this sudden tragedy came upon them. And I don't have the answers. But of course, Jesus is the answer. And I, as we move on from this opening statement, this declaration by Job, I cursed the day I was born, it would have been better to be stillborn. Actually, Job, it would have been, because your parents would have been grieved beyond measure. Might have been better for you, but not for your parents. Minister anyone that's lost a child stillborn. And I can assure you, Job, it's a selfish thought. Your parents had to bury you when you're stillborn. It wouldn't have been better. But, you know, when you're suffering and you're through heartache, you don't think straight and you say things you probably shouldn't say. And when we're ministering to people who are in great despair, you should not take personal or over, like, put too much value on some things or shame when they're working through the philosophy of life and the purpose of life and their place in the universe and a trillion galaxies and billions of people and it's one soul and Jesus knows the hairs on our head. You got to realize we all work through stuff. We process things differently, by the way, of course. The irony is Job said that he cursed the day he was born, and he said that God had hedged him in. And in fact, we already know from chapters 1 and 2, God had hedged a hedge of protection around him. So though Job seems like he's been hedged in, like he's imprisoned by the Lord, the Lord had protected him and was still protecting him. He was still preserving his life. Because he said to Satan in chapter 2, you can afflict his body, but you cannot take his life. God was not done with Job. And until we step in eternity, he's not done with us either. But he said, the thing that I feared the most, that which I greatly feared has come upon me. And we're just reminded how the devil plays on fear. He, he, he's the king of fear. Faith and fear are opposed to each other. They can't coexist. So they do, it's like light and darkness, faith and fear. And the devil wants to move us to a place of fear. Generally speaking, for the future of the unknown. And the devil has no short list or limits to the database he can give you to cause fear to enter your mind. All kinds of fear. Fear for yourself, fear for your loved ones, fear for your future, fear for your assets. There's just all kinds of fears that the devil can feed your mind with if you don't take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. We're told to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to fight that fight in our mind and take it captive. We often think of that as like lust and pride in these things, but it is also fear. 
there are, there are things that could be our worst fear. But we can't be frozen and crippled by that fear. We need to live by faith. And we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, because we're told that perfect love, in 1 John 4, we're told that perfect love casts out all fear. And there's terror with fear, but there is no terror with the Lord Jesus Christ. God is love, and God so loved the world that gave his son, and by this we know love, that Jesus died for us. So any time that fear comes in your mind, a fear about losing this or losing that, or this could go wrong, and we're going to lose the court case, and they're going to take everything, I'll be homeless. Wait, listen. Take that thought captive because God is good and God does good. And all things work together for good to those who trust in God. So whatever fears can come into our future or maybe hovering over us like a dark cloud on the horizon, just make that thought, whether it's your own folly as a son of Adam and daughter of Eve or the devil himself coming from the throne room of God to accuse you. Take that thought captive and obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we can live in fear of our worst fear. Jesus died on the cross so we can know he's conquered our worst fears and we can have peace no matter what the day brings. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And faith triumphs over fear. And even when I hear of horrible tragedies, and I will have a thought come into my mind, how can that work together for good? I'm transparent. I, when there was an infant death last year that, uh, from a pool drowning, it was just, this, this, it was such a, Sam knows, it's just such a tragedy when I got, I was like, oh. But you know, God brought the family through it, the grandparents through it, they did the memorial, and the, they're walking with the Lord, and it's just got to crush them whenever they think about it. And, but I just, when I heard that news, I'm like, as a son of Adam, I think, how can that work together for good? Like, how can this be good? But you see, I don't have to answer that question, nor do I need to know the answer to that question. I don't have to answer it, and I'm just a man, so more often than not, I don't even have the answer anyways. And God isn't obligated to answer that question to me. What I'm called to do is have faith in the God who promises that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All I need to do is trust in his person, his character, his finished work, his promises, and his return. That's what we're called to do. So even if you're like Joey Brand, sometimes you go like, I don't see how that can work together for good. I'm like, don't think that, don't think that. I, that's what I do. I'm like, don't think that. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. Because I truly believe, like Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, you have to have a file where you just put everything you don't get. You have to have a file in your soul in the recesses of your being, where you put those things that it doesn't make sense to me, and you've got to give it to the Lord. And if you can live for 80 years from here to eternity, 90 or 100, whatever God gives you, and keep that file and have that file, it'll serve you well. Because the book of Job will teach us one thing, that God is sovereign, he knows everything, and we're men and women, and we don't know nearly what we think we do. And that's that. And it comes back to faith in the person, the work, the promises, and the power of Jesus Christ of our life. So don't let the devil trip you over the thing I feared the most. Because there's people that get weird on this passage. Like, oh, you created your own. No, no. Listen, man, it didn't work that way. You're not that powerful. You're not that important. God is God. You're not. Jesus died for us. Jesus said, be anxious for nothing, but to cast our cares upon him. And Paul said to 
take every thought captive to the Lord and to cast our cares before him. And the peace of God will ruin our hearts and minds. So whenever that temptation is there for fear of the worst case scenario, you've got to remember Pastor Joey this night on the 16th of January, 2024, and say, you know what? What Joey taught was true and biblical and sound. Put the name of Jesus over it and know his blood, his power, and the trumpet with the angels coming has authority over that. And it will work together for good. And there's no suffering on earth. There's no pain, trial, tribulation, or tragedy on earth that will not be manifest in redeemed in perfect glory with perfect joy for all eternity in the next realm for those who trust in Jesus Christ. The more you're in heaven, the better you're off on earth. The more your treasures are stored in heaven, the better you are when you lose your treasures on earth. The more you set your mind on the things above, the better you'll be when you're unsettled by the things below. Right? I just quoted Bible verses for you right there. So let's read on from Job. And now his friends feel like they have something to say. And there's always people like this, you know. They go to small churches. They go to big churches. They're co-workers. They're, they're, in, the, they're in the office. They're in the cubicle next to you. They're your distant relative that shows up at the holidays and they've got an opinion on everything. And because they're religious, they think they know more than you. Right? We all know these people. Just don't be that person. So here's Eliphaz, the Temanite, and he said this. Now let me just say this about the Temanite. It's been pointed out that the Temanite, he comes from Teman. Teman's also from that part of the world, Jordan, Edom. But in the book of Jeremiah, like, which is like, wow, 1,500 years later, Jeremiah mentions is there's still wisdom in Temna. In other words, he's implying that a place that was known for wisdom no longer has wisdom. So it's quite possible, like how some people think they're smarter because of where they live and where they're educated, like the Greek philosophers and stuff like that. It's quite possible this guy thought he was extra smart because he came from the smart people in the smart city that are really smart and they got it all figured out. You know, like people who think they have higher education makes them higher than you. You know, whether they're talking down to you because they just think they're smarter than you condescending or talking down to you because they they went to some big seminary and you just sat under pastor chuck or something like that kind of experience that's when we read this guy what he has to say you're gonna say i know that person or you're like you'll say i hope i never know that person but this is that guy he comes from the city where evidently there was wisdom he said this to job if one attempts a word with you will you become weary but who can withhold himself from speaking See, know-it-alls always got to say what they're thinking. Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands, and your words have upheld him who is stumbling. You have strengthened the feeble knees, but now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you in your trouble. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? In other words, practice what you preach is what he's saying. Remember now, verse 7, whoever perished being innocent, so now he's implying guilt, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen... Oh, he knows everything because he's seen it. Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God, they perish, and by the breath of his anger, they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Oh, he's, got, he's kind of wordy, isn't he? Now, a word was secretly brought to me. Uh-oh. And my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me in trembling. Then his spirit passed before my face. The hair of my body stood up. It stood still. But I could not discern its appearance. And a form was before my eyes, and there was silence. And then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? 
If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening, and they perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellent go away? They die even without wisdom. Call out now, chapter 5, is there anyone who will answer you, and to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and every and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer, because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it, in, uh, taking it even from the thorns. And a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet a man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God. So see, now he's giving counsel to Job. And to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, so he's bringing a conclusion and application that he thinks should be applied to Job. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he shall redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheep of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this is what we searched out. It is true. Hear it and know it for yourself. Again, if you've ever had anyone talk down to you, particularly in subjects of religion, it's frustrating. Because there's people that know the Bible really well and they use it instead to build up but to attack. Instead, to humble themselves and wash their feet with the word of God and lift you up and help you and encourage you like Jesus would, they use it to look down on you, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees did to their generation. They knew the scriptures, yet they twisted the scriptures to their own demise. They misapplied the scriptures, and they lorded over people, and they were condescending to people. It's people that are like this guy, Eliphaz, that discourage God. People from wanting to walk with the Lord sometimes. It's inevitable that when you commit your life to Christ and you get serious about Christ, people like this tend to come into your world because they've been walking with the Lord longer than you. They they're, they're, they're come from a smarter church than yours. Let me tell you as a Calvary pastor, how many I can't even tell you how many times it's been implied that Calvary Chapel pastors and the Calvary movement is a bunch of illiterate hippies that got lucky. The real smart people, you know, the real smart people, they just didn't get lucky, but really earned the favor of God. They're the ones that went to these high ivory tower seminaries. And they know so much more than Pastor Chuck. And they know so much more than Mike McIntosh. He's only got half a head. Raul Reese wanted to kill everybody. They know so much more than these guys. Greg Laurie had seven, you know, dads. You guys got lucky. 
Now, you're thinking like, most of you come from a recovery background, and we know that God's, how the Spirit works, and it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. But I've had to hear this stuff. I've had people in suits and ties look down at me at pastor's gatherings that are not Calvary and say, now, now, where did you get your degree, son? You know how many does it say? I sat under Brian Broderson for two years. That's the best you got. And you kind of get like, it's like, you know, like, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt. It was, it was tough. It was tough. There's a lot of people out there that are religious that have come to these, they, they're eloquent speakers. They can dazzle with big words and they can, they can blow a lot of smoke. And that's what they do. And they often look down on people who they see as the common people. But remember, it's said of Jesus that the common people heard him gladly. And the religious leaders are the ones who put him on the cross. Eliphaz says a number of things that are true here. But in saying things that are true, he misses the heart of God in some of these things because he's talking about God. He's ta- you know, there's people, I've pastored people at times, they talk about God, but they don't talk to God. You know, like, I'm, like I said earlier. They, they think that a morning devotion is a means to an end to re- ascend to religious power to tell people what to do in the name of God, but they never really have the heart of God or know God. And they come and go in all denominations. And it's, it's a human thing. People want to load over people. People want to be smarter than you in the things of God. You just can never let these kind of people get between you and your faith in the Lord and your relationship with the Lord. Now, he does bring up sowing and reaping, that what a man sows, he'll reap. He implies that back there in chapter 4, which is correct. So, the, see, it's true that no evil will, get, will not be punished, right? There's perfect justice. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say the... the the, the wheels of justice turn, they might turn ever so slow, but they will turn completely to full justice before it's all said and done. And that's true. Because we see injustices, and we don't always see it come to pass, justice on injustice, but it will come to pass in eternity. So we know that what, if we sow evil, it's, it's the cause and effect. It's the universe. It, it is a universal law that's personally made by God, and it runs as universe like gravity, spiritually. But... Just because evil, uh, bad actions produces bad fruit doesn't mean because someone has something bad happen to them doesn't mean that they had bad actions that produced the bad. Because Jesus said it rains on the just and the unjust. We know that. We know that bad things happen to good people, which is what this book is all about. Bad things can happen to good people, and Job is exhibit A. The very first verse tells us he's a just, upright man. But his friend Eliphaz is saying, well, you know, this wouldn't have happened. had you, you wouldn't have a bad crop if you hadn't planted a bad seed. And if you want to be right with God, God blesses people that are right with him. So therefore, make it right. And then you can be restored and have peace in your tent. Except the fact is, Job never made it wrong. How can you make right something wrong that wasn't wrong? He's already right. So the perspective, the philosophical deductions... The conclusions, they're all wrong. But we will say this, Eliphaz coming from a a city of wisdom, he does bring up truths because a bad seed will always produce a bad crop. But just because something bad happens doesn't mean there is a bad seed. That's where he's wrong. Do you follow me? This is really important because bad things do happen to good people. 
Good people are driving down the street, mind their own business, and they're killed by drunk drivers to no fault of their own when they're 17. You just, you just, in that situation, you just have to know that God's bigger than that, and those are the days determined for that person. That person didn't do something evil that a drunk driver hit them in, in a head-on car wreck and took their life from them. That's a faulty conclusion. So we need, we need to understand that. Also, he says that the, the Lord catches the wise in their own craftiness. This, that, that verse there in verse chapter 5, where he quotes that, that's actually verse 13. That verse is quoted in the New Testament. Did you catch that? If you know your New Testament, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where God is talking about the folly of Greek philosophy, wisdom, influencing and impacting the church. And he said, for all you people who think you're super smart in the church with Greek philosophy, know this, that God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. And he confounds the wise of this world, the wisdom of the world, with the foolishness of God, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So this actual phrase by Eliphaz, who God rebukes his counsel in the end of this book, but he says something here that's true, universally true. And the fact that it is true is affirmed in the New Testament by the Holy Spirit when referenced by Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle quotes this verse, Job chapter 5 to tell and warn the church in Corinth, God will deal with worldly wisdom, and it doesn't stand. So we have, to, we have like a paradoxical situation here, and this is how we need to understand this. Truth is truth. But how we apply truth is the big difference. That's a big difference. Again, some people think the Bible is like a sword to hack people. That it's a... Some people use the Bible to hurt people. Particularly if you're... When married couples are going at it with each other. In the church. I've sat there as a pastor and have people come in that want to divorce each other. And there's high tension in the marriage. And I've watched this husband quote these Bible verses and this wife quote these Bible verses. See, they might be quoting Bible verses that are true, but their usage of those passages and the context is, is not the spirit of what they're meant to be, how they're applied. And that's Eliphaz's problem here. He said things that are true, but the application is, is wrong. It's faulty. So um, probably the biggest thing we can learn from Eliphaz in round one with Eliphaz, because we can learn from these guys, is... Can you withhold, uh, but who can withhold himself from speaking? Well, it probably wouldn't be a good idea if he did. <laughs> right? He said, though, even if I have seen this, and then he had this spirit reveal things to him, that because the counsel of that spirit's rejected by the Lord, who knows what the spirit is. Uh, Henry Morris from Institute for Creation Research said there's a demonic spirit that deceived him to discourage Job. I think that's quite possible, if not absolutely the case. So he's got, I've seen this, and... I've got a secret spirit speaking to me. You know, like the the Gnostics of the first century, we just got hidden knowledge that you don't have. We know more than you. He also said in chapter 5, I've seen this. So he has all these opinions based upon what he's seen, where he's from, and his limited intellect as a finite man. That's his problem. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it says in Romans. And that's why you get people all in their bantering with their opinions going to say, you know, let God be true and every man a liar. Our opinions don't mean that much, particularly when you're trying to minister to people that are suffering. It's humility, it's love, the 
God's truth is comfort. The God of comfort who comforts us that we might comfort others. Now we read on in chapter 6, and now we get Job's response. So we had Job's opening statement, and just cursing the day he was born, but God's bigger than his fears. He's in despair, he's despondent, and this guy just pours it on. And the last thing his friend says to him, hear it, know it for yourself. Oh, just the exasperation you had felt is Job right there. So Job responds, verse chapter 6. Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief are fully weighed and my calamity is laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass, or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me for the things that I long for. That it would please God to crush me. That he would lose his hand and cut me off. That I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exult. He will not spare. For I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. See, he's saying, like, I was, I was a good witness. Verse 11. What strength do I have that I should hope? What is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength in the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Is my help within me, and is success driven from me? To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of Almighty. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of ice into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The, the paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Did I ever say bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or deliver me from the enemy's hands or redeem me from the hand of the oppressor? Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand when I have erred. How forceful are right words. But what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as a wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless. You undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. You'll now let there be no injustice. Yet, can, Yes, I concede my righteousness still stands, my righteousness. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? So he's basically saying, these bad things have happened to me, but it's not like I can't discern right and wrong. I didn't take a bribe. I didn't ask for a bribe. I was above reproach, and he was. Now, God will rebuke Job at the end of this book, but he already said that he's a just and upright man. So it, it, it's, it's, it's all, you know, when you have to defend yourself, isn't it kind of tough, like at work against a lie or something? Like, it's always kind of an, yeah, I don't know, it just always feels a little like embarrassing. Like, whenever I had to defend myself, I don't defend myself often. I don't like it. I, I don't like, and who has time to defend themselves from everything that comes against them? But in this case, contextually, he's given, he's given defense. I, I love verse, 30, uh, verse 14. He says, to him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That's a good word. WG, that's really good counsel. Did Jesus minister conditionally in the Gospels or unconditionally? Unconditionally. Jesus ministered unconditionally. The woman caught in adultery? That'd be the most embarrassing thing ever. Who can even imagine being caught in adultery and paraded and humiliated publicly for it and then come before God in time for it? And yet, he was gracious with her. So we see, like, 
Job really touches a, a nerve here. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by a friend. Keep that in mind. Because we get frustrated with people's failures. People we love, when you give them good counsel, don't heed it, and then they make bad decisions, and you got to clean up the mess, right? Come on now. That is frustrating. You want to say, I gave you good counsel three months ago. You were determined to do this. Look at the consequence, and now you come to church, and you're looking for comfort and ease. You're looking for comfort and encouraging word. Like, that gets frustrating, right? Like, especially with drug and alcohol recovery people, you try and comfort them. Like, here's the way forward. You know, like I said to my sister six years ago, Barbie, we're going to quit telling you to go to rehab. I'll tell you what the next thing in your life is. You go to rehab, and you finish it. When you go to rehab and finish it, then we'll talk. There's just nowhere to go until you go to court appointed rehab and finish it. And when you do that, then let's talk again. We get frustrated with those people. The people we love and are dearest to us. When we see them make bad decisions that affect their life, we, we lose our kindness. We get agitated and we become impatient. And in Job's case, he didn't even do anything wrong. So I love what he says, though, though he forsakes the fear of Almighty even a person that's really brought a lot of destruction upon their life, lacking fear of the Lord, we should still show kindness. So let me just say this as a key thought tonight. Kindness is always in with the Lord. It's a fruit of the Spirit. I was meditating on kindness this afternoon. I came out in the living room and Jennifer quoted something about kindness to me. This is a word for us. Kindness goes a long way. Kindness, even when people don't deserve it. That's the Jesus style. Chapter 7, we read on. Job continues, Is there not a time of hard service for a man on earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade? Yeah. Like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise and the, need, the night be ended? For I have, made my, I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. Man, that's, that's a bad affliction. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never see good again. So see, we see this despondency and despair, which is not true. He's going to be doubly blessed on the backside. But still, you know, we've, we've been here. You know, many of you have been in this place where you just feel like there's no hope. But our God is a God of hope. The eye, verse 8, the eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the clouds disappear and vanishes away, so he goes down to the grave, does not come up. That's true. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. That's the truth for all of us. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strength and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. I think he's calling for a time out in his just total despair. Verse 17. Where, where, verse 17. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long? Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? See, he's talking to the Lord now. Why have you set me as your target so that I'm burdened to myself? 
Why then do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Like I said, the Lord's open 24-7. Anytime you want to pour it out with the Lord, he's there for you. Ah, it's such a difficult place to be. But think how many people in human history and church history have found comfort in the book of Job in their darkest hour and related to Job. I can kind of relate to this, but not to the full extent, but kind of. I prefer not to from here to eternity, but it's, it's there. And he said in verse 18 that you should visit every morning, test him every moment. You know, everything's a test, so we close with this thought. Just reminded that all that we go through, it's a test. We're always being tested. We want to pass the test. We want to keep growing, moving forward, onward, upward with the Lord. Passing the test. So whatever we're going through, may we look to the Lord and pass the test. Yes and amen.